Good afternoon. Happy Monday to you. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up on the program, raining in many parts of BC, another so-called atmospheric river on the way. Right after the 1230 news this morning, we are going to check in with Environment Canada and see what parts of the province are bracing for more wet weather and potential flooding as well. We're also going to talk about a very busy weekend for Vancouver police officers. They've sent out a list of violent crimes that took place in just the past couple of days. Uh, Police are going to join us after the 1.30 news to talk a little bit more about that. We're starting the show, though, with another blow for some restaurant owners. I felt so defeated. Just the last two years of doing whatever was in my power to keep the business alive, stay afloat, and then that happened. That was Kim Tran speaking with Global News this past weekend, talking about flooding in her family-owned Vietnamese restaurant and saying, as you could hear there, they've worked so hard to keep the doors open and now another blow. She, one of several restaurant owners, dealing with that now. So let's bring in Ian Tostenson, president of the BC Food and Restaurant Association. Ian, thanks so much for being with us again. Happy Monday, Jill. (laughs) Happy Monday to you as well, although uh, not a super happy Monday for owners that are now dealing with flooding. I know, just another one of the, you know, these things that have hit us. Uh, You know, the good news is that it's not, you know, it's not widespread, but the bad news is is that, you know, the Vietnamese restaurant you just uh, highlighted, um, you know, that's, that's their livelihood, and they're potentially out of it for several weeks if they can get the parts, which is a supply uh, problem issue, but also the labor. I mean, there's so much pressure right now on people uh, that are fixing things, you know, whether it's leaks in homes or basements or now in the commercial side of it. Yeah. So it's really tough and um, tough at a time. And, you know, when, when restaurants hopefully have a little bit of cash tucked away after December and now they're spending it on repairs. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a couple of things there, the labor and the supply issues as well, because I think when you see those pictures, when you hear the voices of these restaurant owners that are now having to deal with all of this damage caused by flooding, that is kind of what you think of, okay, well, they probably have insurance and they'll be able to get it fixed, but to what another hassle dealing with that if it's not able to be done quickly? Yeah, in most cases, the insurance will cover business interruption and in a lot of cases, it will, it'll, you know, it'll cover the hourly wages of the employees. But that's the other risk is that if you have to close for, for any period of time, um, you know, you run the risk in this in this particular market of losing your employees. And um, because it only covers just the hourly wages, it doesn't cover things like gratuities. And so there's a, quite a loss of income there. It's um, I know we just had a, a situation in my home where we had a part for a stove, for example, and the guy goes, yeah, I can fix this, but it's like six weeks. And we're going like, okay, so we, we, we bought a new stove. But that wasn't the point. The point is, is that he was saying, uh, and he's a fix-it guy, plumber, electrician guy, that so many of these parts are back-ordered. And this is what, when I heard about these floods, I worry about that as well, too, particularly if it's, if it's beyond a pipe and it gets into the heating systems or other mechanical equipment, um, it could be where you could see delays of several months before these businesses could get up and running again. So that is that happening then also with restaurants? It wouldn't necessarily have to be a restaurant that's experienced flooding if uh, your stove goes on the blitz or you have parts or pieces of machinery that aren't working and equipment yep. that's not working. Are you hearing from restaurants then that that's another thing that they're dealing with the supply issue? They're pretty good at uh, maintenance. 
uh, you know, maintenance is really key because of your of your cooking, and 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 the other one is your um, ventilation. Well, then you're, you're cooling and your water. So, but they're really good at generally, you know, keeping all the conditions equipment up to speed. And I tell you, the one thing that that drives that, Jill, is the fact that we have health department uh, audits uh, at least once a year, if not twice a year. And they'll come in to measure temperatures. So they'll make sure that your water temperature is right. Things aren't leaking. You're not getting mold. Um, you know, you're able to heat water. So all that mechanical equipment needs to be tested. And so, therefore, as a, just a direct result of our responsibility from a health point of view, we've got to keep it fairly well maintained. But, you know, when you get the kind of weather that we've had and freezing, um, that's when you have things that just burst because they just can't take it any longer. All right. So, well, it's uh, sad to see those restaurants, the ones that now yeah. hit with flooding on top of everything else. Uh, just before I let you go, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I am curious. We were talking to a, a cafe owner, a woman last week, who owns two cafes in downtown Vancouver, and she was very concerned about the new rules when it comes to the yeah. $0.25 cent fee for the cups and for paper bags, for takeout bags, saying there's no enforcement, there wasn't a lot of consultation, and uh, she, she was not pleased with what was happening. Are you hearing from restaurant owners? that are finding that as well in the city of Vancouver? I hate to say this because uh, it's an important issue, the environment, but uh, the timing is wrong. Everybody's rolled their eyes. And, and what I'm hearing is, do you think I have time to do this? I have no labor. I have other issues going on right now. We're still in the middle of COVID. And I said this to the city. We were able to get the city to stop it a year ago. This time they said, no, it's gone too far. We've got to get on with it. You know, life's going to change and stuff. Well, that's great. But we're seeing all sorts of weird stuff. Like, for example, if you, you need to program all, all of this stuff into your third-party deliveries. So say you're using Skip the Dishes, and you order, so you and I order from Skip the Dishes, and the system has to calculate, hmm, how many bags do you think that order is going to be? Is that three bags or four bags? We charge 15 cents. The programming is a nightmare. For larger companies, they have the resources to do this kind of stuff. For smaller companies, they're putting out, you know, they're trying to mop up the floods and stuff. So it's a little bit, I think, insensitive. And I'm hoping the city's just going to kind of leave it for a while and let us get our feet in the ground before they start to uh, to get too tough on enforcement. Right. And they did say that for the beginning, at least, it was going to be more about education, not enforcement. But that could change. But it does also seem like with no actual guidance or no actual rule when it comes to where this money's supposed to go, it kind of leaves it up to whether you're a big chain restaurant, whether you're a mom and pop shop and, and everybody kind of deciding for themselves. It was, and it was really, and I'm not going to blame the city, but, it, but the fact is it was poorly, is poorly introduced. Uh, because people you say, well, I'm collecting this. What am I supposed to do with it? Like, and then, of course, they have to understand because they, they will have costs associated with this, the business, but no one knows that. So we could have done it much better. We we trying to do this and jam it in the middle of a pandemic, and I think it's we, we, we didn't do a very good job, and I say we, us, and the, and the city of Vancouver. So we'll, uh, we'll get to them. Um, you know, the city's got all sorts of challenges right now, and the problem is, is that they, they put these programs out and then they're on to the next one. And meanwhile, we're sort of flapping in the wind here trying to figure this out. So any restaurants that are listening right now, I would just you know, call us directly. We'll help you through it. But I wouldn't be too I wouldn't be too fussed about trying to be spending all your time doing this right now at the expense of keeping your businesses just open at this point. All right. Ian, we'll leave it there. Thanks once again for coming on the show and we'll talk to you again soon. OK, Jill, have a good day. You too. 
Well, earlier today, BC Ferries put out some information saying that like many other transportation providers, BC Ferries is anticipating that a number of issues could lead to some service disruptions and the disruptions could affect all routes, but particularly the inter-island routes and this could be happening over the coming months. So joining us to talk more about what customers should be expecting is Deborah Marshall, Executive Director of Public Affairs, Strategy and Community Engagement at BC Ferries. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jill. How much or do we know at this point what people should be bracing for as far as service interruptions? Yes, well, we have had some service interruptions already. Uh, this morning on our Duke Point to Wasson run, we did have to cancel the first round trip due to crewing issues. And uh, over the weekend, we did see some service interruptions on our Powell River Tech SATA run. Uh, earlier last month, we did also see some service interruptions on the Gabriola run. So we are seeing the effect of these crew shortages, a uh, variety of factors contributing to it, but we want to give our customers a heads up there is the potential for service interruptions over the next little while. Do you know how many BC Ferries employees at this point are off because of COVID either because they have COVID or are isolating? Uh, I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but what I can tell you is uh, during the month of December, we actually had about 30% absenteeism across the fleet, and that is quite high, but it's also consistent with what uh, Dr. Henry was talking about. Uh, And we're also finding the service interruptions, uh, or or there are a variety of factors contributing to it. Uh, Not only is it the variant, uh, because we are seeing more people calling in sick, even though they are double vaccinated, but we've also had service interruptions due to severe winter weather lately. Uh, we've had high winds. We also had the snow that was impeding people from uh, from getting to the terminals. So there, there are a number of factors at play here. Uh, we, we're doing the best we can to mitigate any service interruptions, but we did want to put our customers on notice. All right. Is, is a 30% absenteeism, though, that does seem like a high number. What is that compared to? What would a, a kind of normal number for BC Ferries be around this time of year? Oh, maybe around 10% with the regular cold and flu season. But uh, yeah, with the new variant, we are seeing more employees phone in sick. And it's the right thing to do. We want them to stay home if they're not feeling well. That's the prudent thing to do. Uh, But there are these sort of combination of factors which is uh, affecting our ability to deliver our service, even though we do have some mitigation measures in place like overtime and, uh, and staffing pools. Uh, The news release about this as well, uh, also as cites as one of the factors, vaccination policies that have reduced crew availability. So is that, have you had to put workers on leave then who are not vaccinated? Well, you know, it's certainly a person's prerogative. It's it's their personal choice whether they want to get vaccinated or not, and we certainly respect that. But uh, we do have a mandatory vaccination policy for all of our staff. Uh, as of January 24th, all shipboard staff must be fully vaccinated, and it'll be uh, February the 28th for all non-shipboard staff. So are there workers right now, though, that are in a position where they fall under that vaccine mandate and and can't come to work because they're not vaccinated? 
Well, we are starting to stand down some of our employees if they're not, uh, if they haven't been fully vaccinated. Again, the dates are January 24th for shipboard staff and February 28th for non-shipboard staff. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's certainly somebody's prerogative. It, it's a very small number of our staff, a small percentage that are choosing not to get vaccinated. And uh, because of our mandatory policy, we will be standing those employees down. Uh, there's also a mention there of a global shortage of professional uh, professional mariners making it difficult then to to hire replacement staff. Is that something that's new or is that something that, that you've been dealing with? It actually started before the pandemic with that uh, global shortage of mariners. It seems there are fewer people going into the marine industry, but uh, COVID has certainly exasperated that because fewer people are willing to move to Canada, even if they do have their professional status and and all their credentials. Fewer people are wanting to move at this point, so we are finding it difficult to recruit employees. And so is there a certain level then, or is it a Transport Canada rule or as far as is there, if there's a certain number of staff that are out for whatever reason and there aren't replacements, then at what point do you have to cancel the sailing or make those decisions and, and to have those service disruptions? Well, all of our vessels are licensed by Transport Canada, and Transport Canada does set the crewing levels. So we're we're not able to go below that, and and we wouldn't. You know, it's for safety reasons. We need uh, critical crew in certain positions for uh, for safety as well as to operate the vessel. So uh, we we can't go below those Transport Canada uh, regulations, and and we certainly wouldn't. So it, you know, if if we're not able to backfill employees or or pay people overtime and whatnot. Uh, then we are faced with a situation where we might have to uh, to cancel a few sailings. And do you anticipate, will you be able to give travellers, passengers uh, a heads up or how much time do you think there will be? I, I mean, I guess it's impossible to know for sure, but what would be the goal as far as giving people the heads up that an upcoming sailing is being cancelled? Well, if there's any planned issues that we know of, we can certainly let our customers know uh, in advance. Uh, but for example, this morning we did have a number of employees call in sick on, that would be crewing the Duke Point to Wasson run, and unfortunately we had to cancel that first round trip at short notice. Uh, I would suggest anybody planning on traveling with us over the next little while do check our uh, routes at a glance page. We've got lots of information on our website and we'll definitely get the word out as soon as possible. And if somebody has a reservation on a ferry that's cancelled for for just that reason, say like what happened this morning, that there were too many sick calls and the sailing was cancelled, do they automatically get a refund or does it get put to another sailing? Uh, we would automatically refund that customer and we would get them on the next available sailing as, as quickly as we could. And you mentioned too, or the the um, the notice said particularly on the inter-island routes. So do you anticipate there will be more service disruptions on particular routes? Well, you know, with the, with our smaller runs, they, they run, they operate with fewer crew than we do on our major vessels. Uh, you know, on the Spirit class vessel, for example, if we were short a couple of crew members in a non-safety critical position, we can still sail that vessel just taking fewer passengers. But on the uh, inter-island runs, uh, you know, they can be operating with, say, five or seven crew, for example, and it's just harder to backfill those essential positions. So that's why we think it will affect our inter-island routes more so than the major runs. All right. We'll leave it there. Deborah Marshall, thanks so much for joining us and bringing us up to speed on this. Appreciate it. 
Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, we've been talking a lot about various health issues and health matters. Here's something we don't talk a lot about, but some great research is making a lot of progress when it comes to detecting sepsis, which is extremely deadly. And joining us to talk more about that is Dr. Bob Hancock, UBC Killam Professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi. What exactly is this looking at? Well, I'm, actually, before we get to that and the, the artificial intelligence, can you talk a little bit about sepsis and how dangerous it is? Yes. Yeah, so um, there was a paper published just a, a year and a bit ago about how uh, frequently people get sepsis. And it was revealed that, in fact, there are 49 million cases worldwide every year. But because it's particularly deadly, 11 million people died That is 20% of everybody who died on the planet died from sepsis in 2017. So in 2020, it was probably worse because uh, everybody who dies of severe COVID disease dies of sepsis also. So it's um, very, very prevalent. Yeah, and, And how do you define it? What exactly is it? Yeah, so the technical definition is a, a dysfunctional um, way we respond to an infection. So normally what, we, what our body tries to do is respond with its immune system to try to defeat the infection. And when that goes wrong, um, basically the body starts to fight against itself rather than the infection, and that's what sepsis is. Hmm. And if somebody is in that state or they've entered into a state of sepsis, is there a way to bring them back? Um, well, not everybody dies, but uh, they're, they're, yeah, what happens is if they end up in severe sepsis, so firstly, I should say, if they start off with sepsis, it's possible to intervene early enough um, that you can stop it from progressing. And you, the usual intervention is antibiotics plus supportive therapies. But uh, if they get have uh, really severe sepsis, a certain percentage will die um, and the others will survive. But those who survive have these long-term issues like you've heard with COVID, long COVID. There's a sort of equivalent in sepsis called post-sepsis syndrome. Um, and so they can have really long-term issues. So although they survive, there is also the chance of long-term problems. And can some of those, if I'm remembering correctly, having covered some extreme stories about this in the past, can it even lead to uh, partial amputations and that kind of thing? It can lead to almost everything horrible that you can imagine. (laughs) So um, heart disease, uh, death, um, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, all sorts of things like that. So this is some groundbreaking research then in detecting sepsis and using a, a kind of artificial intelligence. How does this work? Yeah, so um, what we did is we uh, used a, um, a next generation sequencing technology to find out all of the things that, uh, set the, uh, that are expressed by sepsis patients. So it's actually looking at gene expression. And what you do is you collect a massive amount of data. So uh, we looked, in fact, at 350 patients from four continents. um, And we were collecting for each of those patients uh, tens of thousands of data points. So what artificial intelligence does is it kind of goes through a mix and match strategy where it looks for possibilities of interconnections within the data. Um, And by doing that, what we were able to do is two things. Firstly, we could... We 
were able to find a set of um, uh, express genes that result that uh, actually predict whether you have severe sepsis. Um, really, at the very earliest time, when a pa patient enters the emergency room, we are also able to take uh, this complex disease sepsis and divide it up into five different types of disease. So, really, a lot of stuff uh, through this uh, learned through artificial intelligence. And does that help then with if somebody arrives at an emergency room and maybe has some of the symptoms, but because it can be vague, would that help then kind of figure out if these symptoms are in fact sepsis or something else? Yeah, it basically what the physician now can do is they can have a fairly good idea about whether that patient will go on to severe disease. And that means that they can then with confidence start to treat that patient the problem is that uh, at the stage of the emergency room, the symptoms are all rather nonspecific, you know, changes in uh, heart rate and blood pressure and uh, body temperature and such like. Um, and all of those can belong to other diseases also. So at this stage, the physician is more or less using their experience to figure out whether the patient possibly has sepsis, and they're often unfortunately incorrect. Um, so this will provide some certainty to allow them to a much better chance of being correct. And I would imagine too, and you've touched on this, that in a sepsis diagnosis, earlier is very much better. Yeah, for every hour you delay, there's something like a 4 to 8% increased risk of death. So that's, that's a huge penalty for um, a late diagnosis. And usually the diagnosis is out at 18 to 24 hours. Wow, what a difference then and, and kind of game changer this sounds like. We would like to think it is, yes. <laughs> uh, so what would then or how likely is it that we would see something like this being used on, on, uh, in, in more settings and being becoming kind of the norm when diagnosing? Yes, yeah, so I've, uh, um, without mentioning any names, I've built a company um, out of this technology um, and we are pretty well getting ready to try to file for the approval of a diagnostic kit, um, hopefully filing sometime in the middle of this year. So pretty soon, I'd say. Hmm. And, and when we look at patients, when you talk about the, the millions of people who die every year of sepsis, does it break down as well? Are, are certain age groups more susceptible or is it right across the board? Yeah, with normal sepsis, it tends to be in the older crowd. Um, and uh, all the very, very young uh, infants, uh, especially premature infants. Um, but uh, it can affect people of, uh, of any age. And you mentioned as well that this also ties in, well, we're not directly talking about COVID-19, the COVID-19 deaths, there would also be sepsis in a lot of those cases? Yeah, we, in fact, we did study a few COVID patients in this paper. Um, and we showed that they more or less have the same things as uh, regular sepsis patients have. So we can see the same signatures uh, that uh, predict severity. We can see the same signatures that divide the disease up into specific uh, subtypes of disease or different mechanisms, if you like. And looking at the research as well, or some of the background, this says that the, this technique, 97% accurate, that seems very, very good. Yep, it is. It was surprising to us. It was so incredibly accurate. But yes, it is. How much work went into this or how long have you been working on, on making this? Um, so 
uh, we first started working on sepsis in about 2014. So we've it's taken us a long time because it's extremely expensive to do the sorts of technologies we were doing. So uh, it's taken us about uh, four or five years now. Hmm. And are you getting a lot of attention uh, elsewhere in the, the medical world? Um, I think we're starting to uh, turn people around. Uh, I think uh, physicians tend to be quite conservative, especially with such a complex disease such as sepsis. I think that what I'd like to think is that we're decomplexifying it, <laughs> making it simpler, <laughs> let's say, so that uh, physicians, uh, and I think that that's what will draw the attention. Right, because you mentioned too, when you look at the side effects, even if you are a survivor of this, you can have some pretty harsh and some very damaging uh, long-term effects of this. So would this not only help save people and keep people alive, but also keep them from having those really bad outcomes? Yeah, just from regular improvements in practice, we've seen a decrease in the um, death rate from sepsis from about 35% down to what's now about 23%. Um, and we believe we can knock that down even further if you can accurately diagnose sepsis at a very, very early time. Um, and all of that kind of reverberates through the system. It uh, impacts uh, on uh, how many patients will, will die, how many patients will get severe disease, how many patients will suffer long-term symptoms, and also uh, how often you will uh, not use antibiotics against patients who don't need them, therefore sparing the big re uh, issue of resistance. Hmm, which seems like a, a good thing in that, not overuse of antibiotics, but also when we're talking so much about one of the concerns right now being the potential of overwhelming hospitals and overwhelming hospital staff, it seems like something like this would help fight against that as well. Yeah, if you can triage patients so that you can just, you know, really focus on those guys who you know are going to be in dire straits um, uh, before you have to start put, sticking them on ventilators and such like, that's uh, an enormous advance. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing more about this and uh, finding out more about it. But Dr. Hancock, thanks so much for joining us with this update today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for talking to me. Thanks for being with us. Let's check in now with CKNW producer Ben Dooley. Hey, Ben. Hey, how's it going? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. Excellent. You sent out a tweet, and I am I'm just scrolling through. Here he is. January 7th. You sent this out on Friday. I'm just going to read it. It says, 2022 means it's five years since I got my last wheelchair, which means the government will pay for me to get a new one if I need it. Spoiler, I do. First, though, I need to get a letter from my family doctor, which I don't have, justifying why I need the wheelchair. Being disabled is fun. That tweet has uh, had many, many likes and a lot of reaction as well. Obviously, I know you were being a bit tongue-in-cheek there saying uh, this is fun. Can you explain the policy, though, why somebody like yourself who uses a wheelchair has to go through this every five years? Yeah, yeah. so uh, it's, it's a long process. Um, but basically, I, I work uh, every five years. Uh, you know, the government says uh, it's okay for me to to get a new wheelchair and they'll they'll pay for it. And so I work uh, with an occupational therapist uh, through my lo local health unit, to, you know, to to find a wheelchair that uh, works for me and works for, you know, what I I need it to do. And, and part of that process, you know, is to get a letter 
uh, from my doctor uh, that, you know, justifies that, yes, this individual does need a wheelchair um, for his day-to-day activities. And I have to get that letter every five years, even though I am uh, permanently disabled and that's not going to change uh, tomorrow the next day or five years from now i'll i'll have to to get this letter again even though you know nothing's gonna change (laughs) which and i mean some of the responses to your tweet uh, kyla lee who many of the listeners will recognize that name wrote to it because after using one for the last five years you'd suddenly not need it anymore that's dumb and then you wrote back again making light of the situation but also uh, saying yes you said you wrote back to that saying every five years they have to come check to make sure my legs haven't miraculously started working which is funny but it would would it funny if it wasn't just so frustrating i'm sure for you to have to go through this yeah i mean i i try to make light of of most of these situations because sometimes you, all you can do is is laugh at how ridiculous it is i mean the the process is is long enough uh, as it is you know it can take weeks to to months uh for for the whole process to play out with all the all the uh all the things that that I have to go through, and then this uh, now, especially with uh, how stretched our, our health health system is, seems like an an unnecessary extra step that I I have to take. You also made mention in your original tweet that you, like many other British Columbians, don't have a family doctor that you can just go and get your family doctor who knows your history to write this letter. And again, not that you should have to do that, but that would likely make things easier. But that's got to be an added obstacle is you have to get this letter from a person who doesn't really even exist right now. Yeah, I, at the the beginning of of the pandemic, my uh, my family doctor had a heart attack and and thankfully lived through it. But decided, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna retire. I've I've done my my years of service, and and it's time for me to to ride off into the sunset. And and so I've been looking for a family doctor for you know um, over almost two years now. And uh, I still don't have one. And so to get this letter, I I will likely have to, you know, go to a walk-in clinic and uh, and potentially wait uh, wait hours for them to sign off on a letter that, that they might not even read. Hmm. And I know you've been contacted by a lot of people. Uh, there have been other responses to Nicholas Simons, to other MLAs saying, come on, this this should be an easy fix. Let's get this figured out. Another response as well saying through an occupational therapist, you should be able to get this done. But from what I understand, and you're explaining this, even going through the occupational therapist that you would deal with in the in the health authority, that's not a quick process either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the occupational therapist will, you know, write the letter, which which will probably speed things up a little a little bit. But I still, you know, have to go out and get a physician to to sign off on uh, this letter and and what the occupational therapist uh, has written to be to be true. And and like I said, you know, when I've I've gone before, 
the the physician doesn't even read, you know, what what he's signing. He'll just uh, sign off on it, and I'm on my way. And and the appointment itself will will probably take a couple of minutes, but it's the the whole process of you know getting the appointment and 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 all that that uh, you know certainly delays things. And is it your understanding, and I know you, you sent me some background on how this program works and the policy of it, is it is it your understanding then, are these rules in place because they think people are trying to scam government and it's some big ruse where people are trying to get free wheelchairs? I, I, I honestly can't think of a legitimate uh, reason for for something like this to to be in place you know it uh it doesn't make any sense to me why i need to justify the fact that i need a wheelchair uh, uh every five years you know it would it would be different you know if i was you know temporarily uh disabled but uh you know that's not the case that's this is a, a permanent thing it's been this way for 25 years and will be this way for 25 more if I if I live that long. Uh, so it, it seems all kind of ridiculous. Right. So it seems like at the very least, there should be a different category. Like you said, if it's somebody who's dealing with, say, a temporary paralysis because of a car crash or somebody who's dealing with uh, some kind of what uh, something that's deemed temporary. But like you said, yours is not. Yours has never been deemed temporary. So why do you fall under that category? Yeah, you, you know, it it could be somebody that uh is temporarily disabled uh and needs the wheelchair as part of their rehabilitation uh process after um an injury and you know they'll through rehab they they might be able to walk again but uh but somebody like me no no amount of rehab is going to get me up on my my two legs uh so i'm just left uh uh, every five years to 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 fill out this letter and and it it uh, it gets frustrating because um you know it's it's just it's just so stupid Joe yeah and that's a good word for it I think that's what a lot of people. Uh, responding to and saying as well. Uh, my guess is you haven't heard, even though uh, a lot have reached out to both your MLA, the MLA in charge of that ministry. Have you heard anything back? No, I, I haven't heard anything yet, and and I don't I don't really expect to. It was the the point of the tweet, uh, you know, was to just just to to have a laugh uh, at how how ridiculous this is. I didn't I didn't expect anything to come out of it. And and uh, nor nor do I think anything will. Um, but uh, I will say that there were a couple of people who uh, reached out, offering to to pay for the wheelchair themselves, and so that I I wouldn't have to go through um, th- this process, which I I thought you know was was pretty great. But I'll I'll say that you know although I. I certainly do appreciate these offers that it's uh, it's not necessary, but I, it's certainly uh, appreciated. That is, wow, that is very generous that people would do that. But you're right, it's kind of generous, a very lovely gesture, but wouldn't it be great if we could just fix the system so this ridiculous rule wasn't part of it? Yeah, I mean, there is already, you know, a whole bunch of, of requirements that uh, that they have to 
that I, that I have I have to meet. You know, they'll they'll only pay for the cheapest option uh, that's that's available. So you know, if I the, the wheelchair that I have uh, right now, it has some added features uh, uh, so that you know I can go up and down. Uh, I can I can go up higher so that you know if I needed to reach something uh, off a shelf or something, I can do that. And that's not something the government uh, will will likely pay for because it, it's not uh, it's not basic uh, mobility for me. That's an added bonus, and mm -hmm. and so then I'd I've, I'd have to find another uh, funding source for for something like that. And and so you're, they're already pretty strict about you know what they'll they'll fund, and then they have ridiculous rules on top of that that. Uh, make the process even more difficult when I don't think it needs to be. No, and I think a lot of people would agree with that for sure. Ben, we'll leave it there for today. Once again, though, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.